Have you seen the list of the mega companies this pandemic is potentially putting out of business? USA Today published a list this week. The companies include Hertz, Neiman Marcus, Bed Bath & Beyond, J. Crew, Ruby Tuesday, Best Buy, Revlon. That's hard to imagine. This has been a disruption for churches too, of course. And by disruption, I don't simply mean we couldn't meet for a while. This pandemic may have forced big time change on churches. Lots of folks are writing articles about the changes and it's not all good. The Barna Group, a reputable organization that studies religious trends, says that 47%, nearly half of churchgoers, have not watched any online service, church service, in the last two months. 47%. That's stunning. Of course, that doesn't include you, so kudos to you. It's been suggested that some regular church attenders are just not ever going to go back to their churches. I don't mean immediately or until it's safe. I mean ever. It's been suggested that some struggling churches are not going to survive because of this pandemic. It's been suggested that a church's online presence is going to be more important than ever. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. It's been suggested that good churches will see the importance of ministry beyond their buildings in ways we didn't see before. It's certainly an interesting time for churches. Have you read the little book titled The Shark and the Goldfish? It's a neat story about a goldfish who had every, every need met by his attentive family. He didn't have to search for food. It was provided for him. Then his owner, a little boy, decided it would be fun to take his little goldfish to the beach. The little boy dug a hole in the sand, filled it with water, and plopped his little finned friend down in the pool of water on the beach. All was well until a huge wave crashed into the beach, and when it went out, it took the goldfish with it. The goldfish was swept out to sea. In the ocean, things were different from before. His world had dramatically changed. His needs were not now being met by someone else. His Food was no longer provided for him. The little goldfish didn't know what to do and was in danger of starvation. Then up swam a shark. Never fear, it was a friendly shark. A shark who took pity on the poor little domesticated goldfish. Well, looky here, my little friend, said the shark. You know what your problem is? Yes, I do, answered the goldfish. I'm starving and no one will feed me. No, that's not your problem, said the shark. Your problem is that you're a goldfish. And that's fine during the good times when all sorts of folks are feeding you. But you're in the ocean now. The free food is dried up. Times are a-changing. Things are a little tougher here. You have to work a little harder. You need to be a little smarter. You need to change your thinking. You need to think like a shark. Goldfish wait to be fed. Sharks go out and find their food. Now let me show you how to be a shark and we'll go find food together. And off they swam through the ocean and adversity and challenges and lean times to learn the art of finding food. Churches were minding our own business about three months ago when COVID-19, like a big ocean wave, swept us into this brand new world. Now we have a choice. We can lament that things are not the way they used to be or we can, we can find ways to 
do life in a new way and, and to find new ways of join God, joining God in His mission to the world. We can complain about how unfair and disruptive this pandemic has been for churches, or we can, we can try to learn some lessons from it. We can throw in the towel, or we can renew our commitment to our church and our outreach in our region. COVID-19 did not introduce change to the church, it just accelerated it. The church already was beginning to change. Every 500 years, the church with a capital C undergoes a major shift. That's what Phyllis Tickle wrote in her book, The Great Emergence. I never had thought about it like that, but she's absolutely right. Of course, the church was born in the first century AD on the day of Pentecost. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. At around 500 AD, there was the emergence of the, the monastic movements, monks. At around 1000 AD, there was the great schism, the, the big division of the church into East and West, into the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church. Around, around 1500 AD, 500 years later, there was the Protestant Reformation. Of course, we're just beyond 2000 AD, and the shift has been going on now for several years. With the rise of what's called postmodernism, the Western part of the world is changing dramatically. Postmodernism includes ideas such as all truth is relative, and there's a, there's a growing distrust for inst institutions, including churches. So, all that was going on, impacting the church, and then the coronavirus came along and pushed us more radically down the road of change we already were on. So, where do we stand now? What have we learned from this pandemic? As things slowed down, some things, some things became clearer to me, I believe. Let me speak regarding First Baptist Church and the five things I believe we ought to be learning from this pandemic. Number one, TV and live streaming. We're going to prioritize work on our broadcast for TV and live stream to be more intentional about using this as a tool of evangelism, discipleship, and church growth. Forty years ago, out, outreach-minded people like Jack Lucas dreamed this. It's time to redream it. We're not going to reinvent it. We simply want to reach for excellence and to expand our, our reach. We're going to be studying that this summer. Two, race relations. In recent meetings with other pastors, white and African American, to talk about churches reopening, I've been reconvinced that our church must be at the forefront of race relations in our region, and we cannot do that alone. We will do that in partnership with other churches, churches that are predominantly white and churches that are, that are predominantly black. That work never has been more important. Three, fresh expressions of church. We need more fresh expressions of church. The Fresh Expressions movement began in England among church leaders who saw their culture drifting rapidly away from church as we know it. To be clear, a fresh expression of church is it's not a mission project, it's not a, a creative new ministry, and it's not a way to grow this congregation. A fresh expression of church is a new form of church, a simple, small form of church for people unlikely to come to this building or any other church building. Right now we have four from our church, Bright Star among our recovery community and, and people who love those in our recovery community. Second, Heartfelt Expressions at Low Mill among the arts community. Third, Dinner Church in Butler Terrace. And 
Fourth, Manna Church that meets in Manna House. I was at Manna House for worship on Saturday, May 20th. And not only was it a good worship service, there was also a beautiful memorial service for a homeless man who had passed away a few days before. That memorial service, mostly among people who do not have a residence to call their own, reminded me that Manna Church is, is church for many in our homeless community. Scott Day, our missions minister, is the quarterback for our Fresh Expressions movement now, and we're going to offer some opportunities for you soon to become more involved. The fourth thing is a heart for our region. During this pandemic, as I've had a little more time to dream, I believe our First Baptist heart must be for the region. We are church at the heart of the city for sure, but our relationships reach far beyond the city limits of Huntsville. Our vision must expand to the region, not just to our wonderful city. We must be church at the heart of the city with a heart for the region. Number five, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Most importantly, we desperately need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That brings us to Pentecost and the text we heard read a few minutes ago. I want you to imagine with me that group of early Christians gathered in Jerusalem that day. Jesus had died and resurrected about seven weeks earlier. He had ascended to heaven ten days earlier. And they were wondering what was next. They'd been praying and waiting for ten days and, and were eager to get something done. Imagine with me. Peter says, I have a strategic idea. I believe we need to fan out across Jerusalem and witness two by two. First, we'll need training. I'll write a training booklet on witnessing, and no one can go out until they have completed the training. Mary says, I have a better idea. I believe we need to open a bread shop here in Jerusalem. We can offer dates and figs and great bread, and when people come in, we'll talk about Jesus with them. Then, with what we have left over at the end of the day, we can feed hungry people. Maybe we could offer an olive press. We could call it Press On for Jesus. Yes, that's a good name. We'll press people's olives and we'll engage them in conversation about Jesus. James says, before we do any of that, we must organize. I've been working on an organizational chart. And James unfolds a big piece of papyrus. You'll notice that I'm here at the top, he said. And each one of you is listed in various committees. Others chimed in with with their ideas all creative. But they realized the odds were so against them. There were only 120 of them and the world was so big and the world was so evil and Jesus was gone. They had tried to keep their spirits up, but frankly, even those great ideas like Peter's witnessing program and Mary's bread store and James's organizational chart all died for lack of energy. They felt overwhelmed. Then suddenly the shutters blew open and a, and a wind blew in with such force it sounded like a hundred chariots were racing down the street outside. Some screamed. Some jumped under the table. The wind blew the papyrus off the table and blew chairs over onto the floor. And then in the air there were these little flames filling the room. They looked like the the little neck of a first century oil lamp called a tongue, so Luke described them as tongues of fire. They were not, all, they were not aware of what was happening at the, at the moment. They didn't know, but Luke later wrote that it was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Almighty God, blowing into this people 
like a mighty wind. And his spirit filled them, took over. It was such a commotion that the people of Jerusalem came running. Folks thought it was a party maybe that had gotten out of hand. There were people from all over the world there. They were there for the big feast of weeks. And when this crowd of 120 Jesus followers began to speak, all the people heard them in their own language. It was incredible. Peter realized what was going on and he preached an impromptu sermon both to the Christians and to the curious people, the curious onlookers. He began, this is what the prophet Joel wrote about so long ago. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. On my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And the church was born that day, built not on strategies, but on the power of God's spirit. I pray often for an outpouring of God's spirit among us to renew us, to revive us, to empower, empower us. Some of us meet every Monday morning in the chapel at 7.30, and you're welcome, by the way. We conclude up at the altar praying, and almost every Monday morning we plead for an outpouring of God's Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4.20 reads, The kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. The kingdom of God, the rule of God among us, is not about words in a mission statement or on an organizational chart or in a strategic plan or a sermon manuscript. The kingdom of God is about those things that are neither attainable by us nor can be attributable to us. It's about power. And when I say power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not talking about sensationalism. I'm talking about increasing numbers of genuinely transformed lives and other miracles of God's Spirit that we cannot pull off and we could never get credit for. And that, the power of the Holy Spirit on such display on the day of Pentecost will not only transform our church, it will change the world. We call Pentecost the birth of the church and it's time for a rebirth. Bill Wilson leads the Center for Healthy Churches. He helped First Baptist, our church, as a consultant a few years ago. About this disruptive time for churches, Bill asked recently, is this the death of the church or the rebirth of the church? We'll see, he said. We'll see. We'll see indeed. I can't leave this story of Pentecost without talking about the primary role of the Holy Spirit, which is to point people to Jesus. John 15 makes it clear that the, the first purpose of the Spirit of God is to point people to Jesus. Much like Abraham's servant in the book of Genesis went out and, and convinced Rebekah to come and marry Isaac, Abraham's son. The Holy Spirit woos us, draws us to Jesus, God's son. So since we're talking about churches, let me close with a reminder about who is the head and the heart of our church. I read recently something I had not heard. It's about the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal is an elaborate mausoleum in India in the city of Agra. It was commissioned in the 17th century by the Emperor Shah Jahan. The Emperor commissioned its construction in memory of his wife, Muntaz Mahal, who died giving birth to their 14th child. 
According to Wikipedia, 20,000 workers worked on it and it cost the equivalent of 827 million American dollars. There are lots of myths and a great deal of uncertainty surrounding the Taj Mahal. Tony Campolo said that although her tomb is there in the Taj Mahal, the wife's body is not actually buried there. Allegedly, during the construction of this great memorial to the wife of the emperor, great attention was paid to detail and symmetry, that everything, you know, would, be, would fit and be in balance. This magnificent edifice was coming together beautifully, with one exception. The wife's coffin was in the way. It sat there in the middle of the, of the floor. The architect bravely said to the emperor, if that could just be removed, he said, and, and placed somewhere else, the building would be a perfect and fitting memorial to your deceased wife. The emperor finally agreed. The casket was removed. The wife was buried elsewhere, though no one knows where. There was a building built to her memory for her burial, and its purpose for the construction was removed for the sake of symmetry. And I don't know if that's just a legend, but it does remind us that it's easy to get so busy doing church and wanting everything to run well that we forget its purpose, its heart, its head, the Lord Jesus. It's easy to get caught up in church work, so easy that we can sideline the one for whom the church exists, Jesus. I hope you know Him. Would you today trust your life to Him, receive His grace, and surrender your will, the running of your life to Him. Let's invite Him to the center of our lives and of our church.